If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. I'm Chad Michaels in for Scott Thompson. And, uh, well, as usual, we've got uh, a jam-packed program, a little hodgepodge of everything today. By the way, off the top, we should mention again that, uh, as we always do, the online poll question, Twitter at AM900CHML. Now, yesterday was interesting because we talked about... It's almost the younger versus the older demographic. Our question yesterday was, are you more comfortable using the imperial system or the metric system? 17.2 said imperial. 20.7% said metric. 62.1% said I use some of both. I don't know how you do that. Because if it's 24 degrees, well, right now it's 29 so that's like 84 Fahrenheit. Is that what they're talking about, where they go back and forth? William Weber, you're uh, shaking your head. My uh, technical producer, what do you think about that one off the top? Well, I see that as um, I don't measure my height in centimeters, right? Uh, I, I could right. say I'm, uh, what is it, 1.88 meters, but generally uh, I say 6'2", but okay. I also say it's 29 degrees outside. Ah, uh, okay, I got you. All right, so then, the, and you you don't say, you know, you're like 180 pounds, or, or no, you would say that as opposed to being, you know, kilograms or whatever yes exactly the however sort of, like when you buy meat it still drives me crazy at the deli <laughs> counter because you don't know, kilogram whatever anyway what is uh, 100 grams of meat i don't know anyway I, I, a lot trust me if you bought 100 grams of uh well no it's not it's not that much at all i'm thinking of something else never mind kilogram. <laughs> my price is anyway a lot. yes <laughs> anyway so thanks for that so uh, the online poll question today by the way I love this. NASA is sending a test rocket to the moon in hopes of landing people there within a couple of years. Does this excite you or leave you a bit flat because it's already been done? Your choice is this is so cool, I'm not really interested. I'm more interested in watching uh, a new rocket go to the moon than I am seeing people like Elon Musk or other people of that ilk, William Shatner, going up in space for 12 minutes and watching them float through a cabin because they can afford it. So, so that's it. Um, that's what I think. Anyway, so that's, that's the online poll question of the day today. Now, coming up on the program today, we have, uh, as we say, something uh, a little, it, it's a lot of hodgepodge is what it is. Different, different topics. It's the summertime, and this is actually uh, interesting when we talk about this. Um, yesterday, we were talking about the opening of the CNE, as you remember on the program. And Global's Matt Carty yesterday got the assignment. <laughs> I And I have to ask him if he actually asked for the assignment or was told that this is your assignment. But he got to sample some of the uh, <clears throat> delicious food that they had at the CNE this year. For example, Squid Ink Korean Corn Dogs, 60-centimeter-long tacos, and this one, I find it obscenity. Ketchup and mustard ice cream. No to that one. Some of the, uh, if you will, the delicacies. We'll talk about that um, and actually asking how his stomach is and how his system is after uh, going through that. We'll talk to him today. Coming up just after 3.30 this afternoon, a federal judge said he's inclined to unseal some of the affidavits central to last week's FBI search of former President Donald Trump's home, and he has instructed the Justice Department to redact the document in a way that would not undermine its ongoing investigation if made public. 
which of course begs the question, why bother then? Why? What are they holding or what are they uh, afraid of? We'll find out from Reggie Cicchini, our global news correspondent down in Washington, uh, coming up this hour. Also... One of the small businesses uh, we spotlighted on uh, this program over the last few years was Mikey's Cream Pies. Well, recently, owner Mike Jensen announced on social media that it looked like the business was going to have to close down. Well, we find out today, because of an overwhelming amount of support, that street, uh, Barton Street business has brighter prospects. He tells us about the history of the business and how things have taken a turn for the better. Now, on the other side of that, when you're talking about businesses, a new story came out today. Rising amount of small businesses are facing bankruptcy and other bleak product uh, prospects. So you have one that's kind of been uh, saved a little bit and others that uh, may not make it. And we'll have uh, an update on that as well. Also coming up uh, today, we will have a pair of tickets to see Blue Rodeo at the Budweiser stage on Saturday, August the 27th. So that's kind of what's on the program for today. And also we will be uh, telling you how you can win those VIP tickets to the long road back. Uh, well, we can do that right now. we got a couple of seconds. Uh, the show coming up on uh, Thursday, September 28th at the Burlington Performing Arts Center. Spoons coming back. Yes, they are. Gore Depp and Sandy Horn, the group that started all those years ago at uh, Burlington Nelson High School. Uh, you know, Romantic Traffic, Nova Heart, all those songs. They're coming back to raise money for the Canadian Mental Health Association, specifically the Halton Branch, which is why the event is in Burlington. It all ties in together. So that and some other artists as well, and a little bit of talk about um, anxiety and the battle that I had with anxiety. It, it, it's a great night, and you can go absolutely free. And you can enter at any time. You don't call the line that we have for a contest, but what you do is you enter online. So you go to 900CHML.com, click the contest page. It comes up, win VIP tickets for the long road back, enter the win, just put in all the information, all the stuff, click enter, and then you're entered. And then we'll make the draw a little bit later on. So that's a little bit of what's coming on on the program today. The CNE opened up yesterday, uh, and they had media day, and, and people, uh, media people that I saw on Twitter and Facebook and video and everything else were all sampling the fair and joining us to talk about some of the stuff that he tried. I think delicacies. It may be a bit of a misnomer, but we'll find out. It's Global's Matt Carty, who joins us uh, back from the CNE. Matt, first of all, thanks for joining us. B, did you draw the short straw on the assignment, or did you want to go down there and do that? Uh, a little bit of both. <laughs> uh, I, I was voluntold, I guess, that I had to go. That's the that's the word we're going to use. Um, yeah, it was, it was something, obviously, that was pitched to me. And yep. uh, I said, yeah, sure, why not? It's... Uh, it's good to get out. I mean, everything yep. after after COVID and everything like that, and working from home. Yep. It's good to good to tackle stories like it these, is. Right? It's nice to go out and see people now. But some of the stuff that they had uh, apparently down there, off the top, we're talking about squid ink Korean corn dogs. A, did you see any? And B, of course, the question is, did you sample them? I did see the squid ink dogs. I did not sample them. I mean, squid's just a bit much for me. Um, but yeah, squid ink is a, is a bit of a rage these days. I hear. Um, I don't know too much about it. Uh, and again, it's just 
it's out of my realm a little bit. But yes, squid ink uh, dogs are a thing this year at the CNE. Is that something that might be interesting? You, Ab- you, you interested in? Absolutely not. So <laughs> that's number one. Number two, sixty centimeter long tacos. Everybody loves tacos. Well, I shouldn't say everybody. Most people love tacos, but 60 centimeters, I would think, would leave you rather filled and stuffed, would it not? That, that one I did sample. Obviously not the full 60 inches, yep. but I did sample sample the tacos. Obviously a, a bit of a shareable treat. Um, and I guess you could say maybe bigger is better with some of these foods. Not only was there these extra long tacos there was also the 10 inch mozzarella sticks that you could sample Ooh. uh I, I did speak with the the gentleman who who i guess invented those or who is behind those and he says he could eat one in, in one sitting so you know that's just too much cheese for me i think now the other one that uh, i really uh, you know and we all love ice cream i mean everybody does right unless of course you're you know allergic to it or you have problems but uh, that that's kind of a broad statement this i find an obscenity to humanity ketchup and mustard ice cream let's talk about that one yeah let's okay let's clarify it here it's it's not ketchup and mustard flavored ice cream there's a ketchup ice cream and then there's a mustard okay. ice cream it's All not right. like a mixture of both so you can have your red one you can have your yellow one yep um and that appears to be the new big ticket item this year the cne actually teased it earlier this month when it was uh getting geared up for the for the cne just to give us a sample of uh, of what was to come um and then yesterday we obviously got the, the the taste sample and also i need to clarify as well it's not like it's vanilla ice cream and and mustard is drizzled over it or ketchup is drizzled over it it's it's mixed in to the ice cream so uh, and the way i would describe it it's not overpowering really um you, you get a hint of it it's it, it, it's vanilla ice cream Base and you get a you get a hint of it and the mustard ice cream uh comes with a pretzel uh garnish on top and the ketchup ice cream comes with a french fry garnish on top now, so <laughs> you know there's there there's other stuff too uh sorry to cut you off mac uh, from what i understand is they had uh, something else different mac and cheese lemonade Again, something, I don't know how these people invent this stuff, but I would suggest uh, just having people sample it is what they want to do. But again, that one turns your stomach, I think, a little bit. That one I drew the line at. I couldn't do that one because it's a texture thing for me. Having like, because it's it's lemonade with mac and cheese inside of it. Interesting to note, the people who invented the ketchup and mustard ice cream are also behind this one. They're also behind the pickle lemonade as well, which is an old item that that's coming back. But the mac and cheese one just, just didn't do it for me because they actually had the noodles in the drink, almost like a tapioca type thing going on there. And no, for that, for me, that's a texture thing. And I I couldn't eat slimy slimy noodles like that. I'm look. Uh, our guest is Matt Cardi, global reporter, who was down yesterday at the CNE sampling some of the fare during media day. I'm also looking at the picture on uh, our Global News website. Something else that we didn't talk about. It's the pickle split that uh, Dole Whip. Uh, so basically, as you can imagine, it's like it's a pickle on either side with a pickle slice in the middle of Dole Whip. Again, they take something and they they make subtle changes or maybe not so subtle changes to it did you see anybody sampling that i again i did not but the overarching theme to all of these is how can we take it to the next level without actually making people 
throw up. So <laughs> they're always trying to sort of one up each other. And and going back to the ketchup and mustard ice cream, um, the gentleman behind that said it took him six months to perfect that recipe. So obviously, you know, maybe the, in the early stages, there was too much ketchup, there was too much mustard. Um, but all of these there's a lot of work. It's not like they spent last weekend throwing these all together and then pitching it and see what people think. They've worked on these for months. They've, they've tested them at their own restaurants to see what people think. Um, but as, for the pickle split, I did not see anybody trying it. But obviously, there is there is a market for that. <laughs> there has to be, or else they wouldn't be rolling it out at the CNE. Obviously, the big fair that's finally returning after two years. I was going to ask you that, Matt. Uh, it's been uh, two years. They're back for 18 days. There must be a nice buzz down at the sea because um, growing up, as and I'm going back a few years, obviously, it was always fun to go to the X. It was exciting. I always rode the Alpine Way, which took you over the uh, the actual X grounds in, in that little bit of a, a a carriage. So getting back to the X and having people there, I would suspect there are a lot of smiles yesterday because it's nice to get back to a tradition. Yeah, and that's the one thing I heard throughout, that it's good to be back after two years of of, of staying at home and, and not going down to the fair from the vendors, from some of the people around the CNE that are interested in going. Yeah, it's good to be back. That's the overarching thing. Because it's always that signal that the summer is, is coming to the end. It's the final hurrah. And it's the icing on the cake of a summer uh, that had very little restrictions uh, before we head into the fall and winter when we, we, we might see another COVID wave. And they uh, said, the organizers of the CNE, they're expecting 1.4 million people to attend over the 18 days. Gets underway on, on Friday, of course. Uh, and a couple new things that we're all, we all know goes on at the CNE with the air show, the food, of course. But now there's a, a nightly drone show. There's going to be 100 drones up in the sky every wow. night putting on a show. Um, there's a multimedia show in the Coca-Cola Coliseum where the Toronto Marlies play. There's lights, there's graphics, there's even some drones involved in that one. Um, so, yeah, the, the, it, the, the one thing I heard all day yesterday, it's good to be back. And the fact that they lost, uh, from what I understand, they took a hit of more than $8 million, uh, for the last two years because of COVID and cancel. So it's good that the uh, CNE is back uh, to what it was before. Although, uh, again, going back, I really do miss the CNE grandstand days when they had the concerts, but that's a whole other story because the stadium d- doesn't exist. Anyway, Matt Carty, glad you're okay because some of the stuff, as we talked about, could be rather disgusting for somebody's you know system. So I'm glad that you covered the event. Glad that you had a chance to sample some of the stuff, and uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. If I could make the recommendation, it's the Krispy Kreme pulled pork sandwiches. That's <laughs> the one to go to, in my opinion. I could eat those all day, all right? You get the sweet, you get the salty. Perfect mixture. Krispy Kreme Try that one. pulled pork sandwich. All right, we'll see what happens. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The U.S. federal judge has committed to making public at least part of the affidavit supporting the search warrant for former President Trump's estate in Florida. The magistrate, Bruce Reinhardt, has given prosecutors a week to submit a copy of the affidavit with proposed redactions for information the Justice Department wants to keep secret. Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about this is Global News uh, Washington Bureau Chief Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, first of all, thank you for joining us. Never a dull moment. I mean, it's mid-August, Reggie. You know, you'd think everybody's on vacation. Not the case, huh? 
Uh, no, uh, and this is uh, this is a big one. This is yeah. this is another moment where we watch what's going on with the former president and and still scratch our heads to figuring out what's going to happen next. Do you uh, were you surprised by that judge's decision today? That it's giving everybody a week to kind of uh, get set for the next step. Yes and no. Yes, because the legal experts that I've spoken with um, over the last, not just the last 10 days since this broke, but within the last 24 hours as well, legal experts didn't really think that there was going to be any legs here for uh, the media who was in court today making this argument to to have the affidavit released uh, because there is such sensitive information uh, in there. And even with the arguments that were being laid out by uh, government attorneys uh, in this Florida courtroom saying that the, the, the testimony that is from witnesses is so intense uh, and so detailed that uh, putting that in the public's eye could potentially name who that witness is. Um, you know, there's there's a real dance here that Department of Justice now needs to do with this judge to to go through and figure out what it is that they're going to say, maybe we can release this, but we probably can't release that. Now, would somebody in the media perhaps get upset that the whole thing is uh, is uh that the redaction should basically not be done or do they understand those that want this release that uh, as you say there's a delicate dance and uh, possibly uh, some real sensitive information as far as names and things that could happen yeah and and i mean look uh, as as being in the media you know we want the information we want to be able to tell the story in its entirety and and as wholesome as we can without having to use speculation because oftentimes that can come back to to bite the media uh, by speculating incorrectly and then they have to go and correct themselves. So getting the information is obviously imperative, but there's also an understanding here that this A is an ongoing investigation and unless this kind of information leaks out, which it so rarely does, especially from within the Department uh, of Justice, at least in this administration, uh, there's an understanding that there are things that need to remain behind a closed door because the DOJ has said this is still the early days of this investigation and we don't know uh, if DOJ is working up a case to eventually try to lay a uh, to lay a charge here. So getting the details, obviously that's important, but so too is the process behind that. And at the end of the day, Ted, that's really what a lot of, of people who are supporters of Trump and Republicans have been doing is pushing back on the process and not really what the substance is. You know, and once again, Reggie, Donald Trump, again, it's almost like he's, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, speak as a as a, a psychologist, but this, he really appears to be like a petulant little boy that he's going to take all the information with him. I'm going to take it back down to, to my home in Florida, and you're not going to get this information. What does he think actually could he have gotten out of this? I mean, look, you're right on that. Donald Trump during his administration was all about him. Remember, it was my generals. It was my Congress. It was my this. It was my that. This was in the eyes of the former president, at least. This was his realm. Uh, and he was pushed back on a number of times by federal judges saying, you are a president. You are not a king. Uh, so to see that he took this information with him to Mar-a-Lago, it's, it's sort of not surprising because he saw that as his, not as government property. I think um, if we if we kind of look at where we are right now, sure, this is an instance of Donald Trump's making. But at the same time, he is also actually arguing to have this information that's being held on to by the Department of Justice put out in the public spotlight. And that, according to legal experts, Ted, is what's also strange about this, because there's information in there that could potentially, um, you know, 
put Donald Trump in a negative spotlight because there was a moment in the court today that's been reported that the judge who signed off on this didn't say that there is likely probable cause. He said that there is probable cause or there was probable cause. So whatever the president, the former president's trying to do here by whether it's creating a distraction or at least trying to appease his base, uh, there are some serious legal questions and concerns for what he's trying to do. And then uh, there's the other part of this, Reggie. You know, we saw what happened uh, with uh, Wyoming and Liz Cheney the other day. And there's still what I've seen and what I've gleaned. There still seems to be this undercurrent of having Trump run again for president the next next election. I'm, I'm still surprised that he has so much, if you will, power or pull or persuasion over people who probably should know better. Well, I mean, look, I think you have to look at this as a bottom up situation, not a top down situation. Sure, Donald Trump has uh, a significant amount of control over Republicans, but that control is realistically over the Republican base. And that's why you look down. It is the base. It is the American the American person who looks up to and wants Donald Trump in power. Those are the people who are then going to put in place members of Congress. So Congress lawmakers may not be really you know on side with what the former president is doing but they understand they need to be if they want to be elected by the people who ultimately are looking up to donald trump so it's it's top and bottom heavy at at kind of the trump influence here and lawmakers whether they want to or not find themselves stuck in the middle of that before we wrap up there's been a lot of talk about mike pence running uh, for president of course a former vice president and donald trump you know how upset he was at uh, mike pence and said a lot well he says a lot of nasty things about people anyway but said a lot of nasty things about mike pence is that campaign is that if you will getting any legs down in the states or is it still too early I mean, look, there's a lot of people who are throwing, uh, you know, what ifs into the wind uh, if they potentially run. There was some comments made by the former president, uh, vice president yesterday when he was uh, speaking in New England that hinted at a potential 2024 run. I think that uh, Republicans are going to look to get through the midterms first and then figure out either what Donald Trump is doing or what their own intentions are going to be, because eventually they are going to need to split. There's a lot of Republicans that are still holding up and backing up what the former president says and does if they want to overcome him if they want to to be the person at the center they will need to make that distinction and and eventually move and turn on the former president despite the fact that they are going to deal with the political wrath that comes from that there's a lot that can change between now and then and we already heard from senator ted cruz that if donald trump puts his name in the ring sometime soon it will clear the field we have to wait to see if that'll happen Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Thanks for the update. As always, we'll watch with a keen eye what happens south of the border. Never a dull moment. Stay safe, Reggie. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We spotted this spotlight of this business uh, every so often on Hamilton Today for the past two years. Uh, Mikey's Cream Pies on Barton Street. And because of, well, COVID and things like that, it, um, the owner, Mike Jensen, announced on social media it looked like the business was going to have to close down. However, we have some brighter news on the horizon about that. And joining us is the aforementioned owner of Mikey's Cream Pies, Mike Jensen. Thanks for joining us, Mike. A good day for you, huh? Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's talk about, uh, first of all, the history of making cream pies for you and how the business got started, and then we'll kind of morph into what's been happening in the last few days. 
All right. Well, I told the story actually on, on this radio station last year when I opened. So um, I worked construction for 30 years. I was a hobby bakey, baker, bakey, a uh, hobby baker. And uh, I started baking from home just for family and friends. Uh, they were sharing it on Facebook. It blew up so quickly that, uh, so that was Christmas of 2020. Um, I had to open a restaurant because I couldn't do it anymore uh, the way I was. So March 9th of 2021, we opened. Um, you opened and then, of course, COVID started. So, uh, Well, I opened during COVID. COVID yeah. didn't affect me at all, actually. Not at all. So, so no. that's good. So, um, and then business was moving along well. And so basically what happened since you opened in March of 2021? Uh, everything has been going great. Uh, this year, the inflation's really hurt, uh, not only me, but pretty much every small business, small restaurant, um, takeout pa- packaging containers have, have gone up. Uh, a great deal anywhere, depending on where you can get um, your items, because not the cheap places don't always have them in stock. But anywhere from three hundred to five hundred percent, they've gone up. Wow! In six months. Now that obviously cuts into your your business plan. So uh, I understand that obviously it wasn't an easy decision or what you were thinking of, and you were on the verge of saying, "I can't do this anymore." Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. Last Tuesday, I made a a post on my social media, on my business page, that um, I was going to be closing at some point in September. Um, And, yeah, because what drove me to that was my air conditioner went in the restaurant, Mm. and I haven't been making even enough profits to cover the cost to repair that. So, you know, that kind of gives you a reality check when you can't even keep up to maintenance. Um, and I don't have something that's very essential in a bakery. <laughs> yeah, and I don't uh, have, and I don't have to ask how how much of a gut wrenching decision that was. Uh, fair to say that there were a lot of sleepless nights before you made that decision. Uh, yeah, a few, and uh, yeah, very gut wrenching. It's um, it was my dream, so it was really hard to make that post, but. The response I got from my loyal customers was humbling. It's, it's the best word I, I think I can come up with. Now, uh, I know when something gets posted on uh, social media, sometimes people don't expect the results or are surprised. Um, this obviously shows that you have a loyal customer base, but uh, as you mentioned, you were really, really shocked by the, how many people actually showed, and I guess the term is overwhelming amount of support. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the last week, I've had the two busiest days of the year. Um, Saturday and yesterday were the two busiest days of the year. They were busier than Mother's Day, Father's Day, Easter, all the big holidays. Um, crazy, the amount of uh, support. And, and not only that, but the comments, the messages people are sending me, uh, people coming to the restaurant and, and were crying together. It's It was gut-wrenching. But then a, lo- a lot of people actually stepped up with some solutions to help me try to continue. And uh, so we're, we're going to try. 
You know, and uh, when, when when you mention people coming in crying, that. <laughs> Despite the fact that it's kind of a dire situation, I know that that is one thing about this city as we pull together and people are very loyal and they help out their friends. Um, I I can't imagine the emotion you went through from uh, sleepless nights to the response you got when people came into your restaurant the last couple of days. It it was amazing. Like, I don't know how many times I, uh, even with new customers, and I'm going through the menu and and I just had to stop because I I had to compose myself. it's it's been unbelievable. I mean, I'm a pie shop, but I I've become to my customers. I think more than that, um, we're very inclusive of everybody. I, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, I, I have the flags on my front. Everybody is welcome, and I mean that. Um, and I've really built something here, and people connect with it, and, and, and it's it's amazing. I'm reading one of the uh, Facebook comments. Uh, Mike, uh, she said, uh, this person, I'm new here. I haven't had the honor of visiting your store. You are a hardworking Canadian trying to fulfill your dream. Sure wasn't an e- easy decision to forego a stable 9-to-5 job in order to become an entrepreneur. Um, I'm so glad you've had some good, decent people helping you, sending you positive thoughts. Uh, we'll pop in soon and try your delicious pies. i got to tell you, Mike, you know, I... I have heard of your business before. I never had, uh, well, I, maybe I just, it wasn't top of mind, but now it is. So I, I can make you an assurance that I'm going to pop down one of these days, 775 Barton Street East, and go in and, uh, you know, uh, see what you recommend, because it sounds like a lot of people like all the stuff that you serve. Yeah, I mean, I, I have nine regular pies on my menu. I always have special pies for uh, special occasions and whatnot. And um, yeah, people always ask me what my favorite pie is. I said, that's like choosing your favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm the type of guy, my, my wife said I'm really, really bland, but I like, you know, your basic blueberry pie or cherry pie. But I know that there's other stuff that you have that maybe I should try. I uh, like a coconut cream type thing or. Oh yeah. Coconut, banana, chocolate are my custard pies. I do dream pies, which are cream cheese with cream filling. They're amazing. They're a lot lighter and airier. Uh, then I have like a peanut butter pie, banana split pie. Ooh. Yeah. It's okay. all good. Well, butter tarts, cookies. We'll have to pop down and say hi then for sure. Congratulations and good luck to you, uh, Mike Jensen, the owner of Mikey's Cream Pies in Hamilton. A, a good news story from what could have been a rather dire story uh, coming up next month. Mike, thanks very much for the time. Stay well. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, you too. There you see. It's a good story. If you know you, you're in business, and a lot of people are affected by what you do, and uh, they have stepped up. The businesses, uh, overwhelming amount of support from people, and he's staying open, which is good. And hopefully, other businesses will uh, be in that situation where they can find a way to get around a problem and then stay open because that's what this is all about. In the next few minutes, uh, now we're going to uh, talk about a, a subject that I wish we didn't have to talk about, quite frankly. And when we uh, when delve into it, you'll understand why. Coming up this Sunday is a, a walk being held in Hamilton on the Shadok Radial Trail starting at 10 o'clock. It's actually starting in the parking lot in Scenic Park. It's the Keep Women Safe Walk. 
And it's been organized in the wake of an unprovoked uh, stranger assault that happened uh, in uh, the area of uh, Hamilton Mountain. It happened up uh, around Upper Paradise and Donaghy Drive on July 13th. And uh, joining us to talk about this event for the next few minutes is the organizer of the walk, Melissa Caswell. Melissa, first of all, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. So let's, uh, first of all, uh, we uh, kind of set the scene, but uh, what made you decide that this is uh, something that has to be done? Uh, well, because I'm an avid walker uh, through the, on the trails in our city, and um, there's been many times where when I've been walking that I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. I don't listen to any music or anything like that when I walk so that I'm, I'm aware of my surroundings. Uh, but I, what I've noticed lately is that the majority of people on the trails uh, walking alone are men because women are too uh, anxious and worried to walk alone on the trails. Um, recently, in this spring and summer, there's been uh, quite a few sexual assaults and attacks on our trails. Uh, even last week, uh, a client of mine, I'm a photographer in, in Hamilton, and uh, one of my clients, she wasn't on the trail, but she was just walking along Brucedale in our city, and she was approached from behind by a 24-year-old. He came right up behind her, got right in close, and sexually assaulted her. Uh, she ended up getting a really good description, and police were able to arrest him and charge him. Uh, and that literally just happened in the wake of me organizing this event. And she reached out to me to make women aware of this person uh, just because there seems to be, like I said, such a rise in sexual assaults and attacks. Uh, men have been uh, seen exposing themselves on our trails to women as well. And I believe that just like everyone else, it's important for us to go for walks, to clear our minds, to get away from the busyness and hectic uh, parts of our lives and, and get uh, exercise, be healthy, and uh, we should be able to do that without worry that we're going to be attacked or and, sexually assaulted. And Melissa, I, I understand why you're doing this, but this frustrates me uh, to no end because, as I've said on the air before, as a runner, and I usually go through, a lot of times I go through Gage Park, it's, it's near to my house and it's a beautiful area. No matter where I am, and I do this constantly, if I'm coming up behind a woman who is walking or running or whatever, I will loudly say, passing on your left, passing on your right, and I stay far enough away from them because I don't want them to be frightened because I'm passing them and they don't know that I'm there. And and unfortunately, right. and unfortunately, that seems to be uh, what uh, women are uh, basically uh, afraid of, and that and that frustrates me. I, I, and women, I'm I'm sure appreciate that. I know that it does happen to me as well. Like when men are passing, they'll let me know. Um, so, and that's definitely appreciated. Uh, but yeah, it's just um, I feel that it's it's something that. Women walking, uh, and many of these women, too, that I've spoke to, they don't even know that these sexual assaults have happened, and they're continuing to walk on the trails to, to run our stairs, because we have numerous stairs that people get exercise um, on in our city. And um, so creating awareness that this has been happening in our city, I think, is very important. And in conjunction with that, 
it's been going on for, and I did some research. And actually, in, in 2019, and I didn't even realize this until after I had organized this walk, in 2019, a local jogger has basically done the same thing because of the number of sexual assaults and attacks on our trails. So, and that was in 2019, and nothing has really been done. I, I frequent the trails often, and I've never seen any police presence at all on our trails. Um, I know that police ride their bikes throughout the downtown core and that. It would be wonderful if they could ride their bikes up and down the trails uh, to make sure that women are being protected and feeling, and our pub the public is feeling safe. Uh, and also perhaps maybe some kind of video surveillance at the entry points of our trails so that if in the event that something does happen, it is caught and that uh, on camera and that... Um, the uh, person that's sexually assaulting or attacking people is seen and caught, hopefully, and uh, charged. So, uh, as we mentioned, it starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday from the uh, yes. Shadok Radial Trail, uh, the parking lot um, in Scenic Park. So, so tell us what's happening. This is not just, you know, hi, you're showing up and going for a walk, which is, of course, part of it, but what else is being planned that day? So, we're having, uh, so the the meeting point, too, I just want to clarify, and, the, and you're, you're right, it's just the, um, there's a parking lot at the Scenic Drive Bend, and it's basically at the top of the Shadok Radial Trail, and we're going to be starting there and walking down towards uh, the end uh, of the trail at Dundurn, that portion. So it's about an hour and a half walk uh, there and back, uh, and we're encouraging all women and men, if they'd like to come out and, and support this, to create, a, like I said, to create awareness, to tell our city, tell our local police department that we, something more needs to be done. We need to feel safe. Um, it, I've also created a Facebook group called the uh, Walk, Walking uh, Walking Women of Hamilton, uh, and it's also a, a group for women to converse when they are going for a walk and where they are going for a walk so that they can, if they like to meet up, they can. They don't necessarily have to because some people just want to be alone. But at least if I know that, uh, say, Susie is going for a walk on this trail and I'd like to go for a walk as well, at least I know that there's some company on the trail. And quite often when I do go for a walk, I will put it on that group that I am going here. I'll be on this trail between this time and this time. If you need me, here is my cell phone number. All right. And, so, yeah. And yeah. I'm, I am glad that you pointed out that men can go and show their support because I know that, uh, you know, um, sometimes women go for a walk and their husbands are, are at home with the kids, which is great. It gives her a chance to uh, to get out and uh, and clear their mind and get away. So it's, it, it's nice that men can also show their support. So, again, that's yes. 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and hopefully you'll get a good turnout and, most importantly, get your message out because this is the most important thing, of course, is letting people know what's going on. Melissa Caswell, the organizer of the walk on Sunday, Keep Women Safe Walk at the Shadok Radial Trail starting at 10 o'clock, the parking lot in Scenic Park. Uh, congratulations on what you're doing. I wish you weren't doing it. You know what I mean by that, but uh, con congratulations, best of luck, and hope it's a nice day for everybody out there on Sunday. 
Me too. Thank you. All right. So there you have the information on the walk being held. And this is not, of course, just in Hamilton. It's it's the case for our, our listeners as well in London and, and, and everywhere else, too. It's, uh, it's unfortunate that this type of thing has to be held uh, because of uh, what's been uh, going on in the past. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Now, in this online era, anybody and anybody and everyone can become their own media outlet, free from accountability and regulations without the same sense of responsibility that previously came with the training received before speaking to the public. Well, can that obviously have real dangerous consequences? Joining us to talk about this for the next few minutes is Jeffrey Dvorkin, a former director of journalism at the U of T and the author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, first of all, thank you for uh, joining us. And I'm going to ask off the top, uh, when we talk about people doing stuff on Twitter and causing a lot of angst, I'm pointing the finger, not that he can see me, at former President Donald Trump. Well, we are living in a very unusual time, shall we say. Yep. Um, And I think the issue of how democratic the media has become. And I don't mean that in a, with a capital D. I mean that with a small d. Right. And, and it, it is allowed people with a minimal technological expertise to express themselves. And that can be okay. That can be a good thing. And some, in some instances, the very fact that there's anonymity to it is also has actually quite a, quite a positive possibility. Uh, For example, a whistleblower. Uh, We're now seeing people who are inside CTV talking about the culture of that place and being anonymous about that. And whether it's true or not will eventually all come out. Uh, But the very fact that the internet has allowed people to express themselves uh, in ways that they never could even five years ago is uh, is kind of remarkable that's the that's the upside the downside is it allows people to express some really crazy and often quite dangerous and and frequently stupid ideas and as part of our overall commitment to free speech uh, we've learned to tolerate some of it and but we're now reaching a point where i think that there is i'm sensing a backlash and that people are saying we need to figure out a way in which the internet can be um, used in a more effective way. And that's the discussion that's been going on in Europe and in Australia to a certain extent in Canada, not to the same extent in the U.S. because of their, uh, their uh, use of the First Amendment into the American Constitution, which allows for unlimited free speech up to the point of uh, physical threats. Jeffrey, uh, you brought up an interesting point. I want to uh, take you back to what you said uh, when you're talking about uh, people uh, tweeting about uh, a meeting at CTV. I know that there's been a lot of uh, a lot of uh, repercussions and a lot of rhetoric on uh, Twitter and other social media outlets regarding uh, the news about Lisa Laflamme. And I... I think maybe I'm sure that management told their staff, you know, do not repeat anything that happens in this meeting. It's confidential. But uh, it's almost a little bit of naivety from them thinking that somebody will not be able to tweet something about the uh, the meeting and what they said, even if they use another name. 
Well, as as you know, <laughs> I'm sure, as, as I've experienced, journalists are the biggest gossip mongers in in the culture. <laughs> they love to gossip. And uh, the, uh, the gawker media, which is now long, no longer with us, said that their philosophy is they're going to put on their website all of the things that journalists talk about after hours. When you go to the pub and you have a beer, yep. and you wouldn't believe what happened today in the office, blah, blah, blah. They said, that's what's going to be our lead. Um, and I think that what we're seeing now is um, an expression of that kind of powerlessness that a lot of people in various organizations have, not just in journalism, but feel that there is a way in which they can reclaim their control of issues that have offended them. And it, it used to be just sort of gossiping over a, over a beer at night after work. Now it's on Twitter and, and Instagram and, and to a lesser extent, Facebook, because you can, you can figure out ways in which you can comment anonymously. And now we're seeing things coming out about CTV. I have no idea if they're true or not. But the fact is, is that there is this tremendous uh, turmoil. Uh, some of it's true. Some of it may just be kind of wishful thinking. Some of it may be a little bit of um, nastiness on the part of disgruntled employees. All of these things are possible. So what we need now, I guess, is to be a little patient and wait for journalists in more established media organizations like yours uh, to do a little research and do some more reporting and get the story out there. What the heck? happened at CTV? Was it just Lisa LaFlamme's hair color? Was there, uh, were there other issues? This is actually, those of us who are in the media or who have been in the media, uh, find this to be pretty typical of what often goes on in a very tough and highly competitive environment, which is journalism. And just before we wrap up, you know, I, I know that one of the things that our concerning a lot of people uh, in the states uh, before and after the Mar-a-Lago raid and what happened on January 6th, uh, that uh, people are actually going, for example, on TikTok, showing themselves uh, in some cases in uniforms, military uniforms and guns, and basically saying, okay, let's go, let's get started. So-and-so needs to be, um, well, you can insert yes. the, the term. Um, and yet I'm surprised that people do that because eventually uh, the police or whoever it is find out who they are because they do their searching and and they can see the, in some cases see their faces. Well, there's no limit to how self-destructive people can be, <laughs> as as we have seen yep. in the past. And if people think that somehow free expression means being able to threaten people, um, they're in for a rude awakening. I think what's happened after the January sixth demonstration, uh, a large number of people are serving some pretty serious jail time. Uh, for for being there and for expressing themselves the way they did. It, there are consequences. And I think that's the interesting thing about what's happening in the media right now, is that we're discovering that 
people who thought that, that they were consequence free are finding that that doesn't exist anymore, or if it ever did. Jeffrey Dvorkin, a former uh, director of journalism at the U of T and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Thanks for the update on uh, what is happening regarding Twitter. And uh, I was hoping that things would calm down with uh, with the former president, but I suspect uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately. Thanks for the time. Have a great day for what's left of it. Thanks so much, Ted. Cheers. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Now, a small business lobby group says commercial bankruptcies are rising in Canada and even more small businesses are at a risk of closure. So we uh, move uh, to our next guest to kind of talk about this, the associate professor with the Spratt School of Business at Carleton University. Ian Lee joins us. Ian, thanks again for uh, taking the time on a, on a sunny Thursday afternoon. Uh, my pleasure, Ted. No, not a problem. So now uh, off the top, uh, does that news surprise you? Because we kind of thought, you know, with the pandemic last year, especially businesses were kind of uh, on the verge. Uh, does that news today Two and a half years out now, the pandemic's kind of easing off. Does that surprise you? Uh, no. And let me just explain by way of background. Many years ago, before I became a professor in a business school, I was nine years in banking uh, in Canada, in Ottawa, and I, where I lent millions and millions of dollars. I was a loan manager, then a mortgage manager, and then a commercial credit officer lending money to small and medium-sized enterprises. And so, again, just very big picture. Small and mid-sized businesses, so-called SMEs, they are, a general, as a general statement, as a broad generalization, they're at greater risk than large corporations. Large corporations, you know, the IBMs and, you know, come Toyotas and Googles, they have enormous amounts of resources. And so they've got a lot more cushion uh, to carry them through bad times, such as recessions. Small businesses tend to be uh, much uh, more indebted in percentage terms of their assets. They don't have the same amount of capital and they don't have the same amount of savings and resilience. And so they're always more vulnerable, which is why, of course, guess what? Small businesses and mid-sized businesses have much higher failure rates than large businesses. This is not a surprise. And and what the CFIB talked about today is, is um, it's a very interesting issue. I don't dispute what they're saying saying, but we'll talk about it in a moment, I hope. I'm not so sure I agree with their solutions. But yes, the pandemic was, uh, was, was did impose a lot of damage uh, to firms in the small and mid-sized business sectors uh, across Canada uh, because of the pandemic and the ensuing lockdowns that did occur. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business released their report and said uh, only 10% of Canada's small business owners would file for bankruptcy if their business was no longer solvent. Is that because people are still in these days afraid of the word bankruptcy? Uh, No, I don't think so. I mean, bankruptcy is a legal concept. Uh, I'm not playing with words. I mean, there's a distinction between being insolvent and being bankrupt. Insolvent just means you cannot make your payments, pay your bills as they become due. That's one of the classic definitions of insolvency. If you are unable to make your payments to all of your debtors as uh, debts uh, uh, as they become due, 
in uh, bankruptcy is making an application to a special court under the Bankruptcy Act of Canada, which is an actual act of the Parliament of Canada, passed, oh my goodness, over 100 years ago. It's very structured and very, uh, uh, all kinds of rules and regulations. And you have to pay money to essentially an insolvency trustee who is a specialized uh, certified uh, accountant uh, who is specialized in dealing with this. And there's all kinds of rules and regulations that that govern the uh, the uh, liquidation of the company if you go the 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 bankruptcy route so i wouldn't get i wouldn't pay too much attention to the are they just shutting down the business and going out of business versus uh filing for formal bankruptcy in either instance at the end of the day the business dies the business ceases to be the business ceases to exist in one instance, the business owner shuts it down voluntarily, liquidates the business on his or her own. With the bankruptcy, it's done through a more formal process through chartered accountants in bankruptcy and working with the courts, the bankruptcy courts, to liquidate the business. Ian, uh, the CFIB, uh, there's uh, the lobby group that uh, they want uh, government support to help the small businesses get through the next few months. Now, uh, did we not get into a, not necessarily a similar situation, but a lot of people collected CERB during the pandemic. A lot of people are surprised now that the government is asking them to pay that that money back. Uh, In your opinion, is that the way to go, more government support for small businesses for the next few months? Uh, I don't believe so. And let me explain immediately for any of your listeners who say, oh, that horrible uh, professor, you know, I have enormous respect for entrepreneurs. I really do. I have enormous respect for people that run businesses. I I lent money to them for nine years. I still bring them in as my guest speakers, and they are the salt of the earth. At the same time, we have to be really careful about creating zombie corporations. I'm not talking Halloween. A zombie corporation is a corporation that is no longer intrinsically successful. And no, it's lost its competitive advantage. Customers no longer want to buy its product for whatever reason. It doesn't matter. They don't like the owner. They don't like the product. They don't like the quality. For whatever reason, they've just lost interest in the company. It's lost its way. It's lost its competitive advantage. And the last thing you want to do is keep that company alive. I know this will sound really crazy, especially to people from, for example, the NDP, and I, I'm not picking on them, but who think that bankruptcy or the shutting down of a business is, is just unthinkable and horrible. It's not. It is not. Bankruptcy is not a bad thing. You know, in the 17 and 1800s, we used to put people in jail for not paying their debts. And then one of the most progressive laws ever developed in the last 300 years in Canada, the U.S. and U.K., was the invention, the innovation of the Bankruptcy Act that said, look, we're not going to incarcerate you and lock you up in jail for years to come. We're going to create an orderly way to dispose of the debts, liquidate your debts, not send you to jail. And it was called bankruptcy. Then those assets of those businesses, the people, the patents, the uh, premises, the machinery are released. They're sold in the bankruptcy or liquidation to other businesses who redeploy them, reuse them, re 
recycle them more productively and more efficiently by companies that do have a competitive advantage, that are successful in the marketplace. So liquidations are not a bad thing. If the company is no longer able because the managers are no longer have the understanding of the consumer or whoever they're selling to, and they're no longer to run the business successfully, the last thing you want to do is just keep the thing dragging on on life support, even though the patient is essentially dead. Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Spratt School of Business at Carleton University. As always, uh, thanks for the clarification when it comes to uh, business, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon about uh, maybe a little bit happier news. Let's certainly hope so anyway. (laughs) Thanks for the time, Ian. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Ted. Thank you. All right, so there you have the update from Ian Lee. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. What happened uh, over the weekend and the last little while um, in Peterborough, where um, adherence to the self-proclaimed Queen of Canada and the world, uh, who became popular with a segment of QAnon uh, conspiracy theory uh, community. They rallied around Donald Trump. She arrived in Peterborough in her mobile home and called for those who were loyal to her to perform citizen's arrests on the local police force. It didn't go well. Joining us to talk about this for the next few minutes is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Phil Gursky. Phil, um, thanks for joining us. I mean, we can sit there and smile at it. I mean, congratulations on trying to arrest the police, but I'll clearly didn't work out that well. Uh, I'm glad you said that, Ted, and I was laughing during your introduction because it really was a comedy of errors at, at the best. And, you know, for this uh, self-styled queen, I didn't vote for it. I don't know if you did. If no. I voted for his queen of Canada. <laughs> but, you know, these obviously are a, a bunch of, for the most part, useless wankers. And I don't know if, you, <laughs> if, if we can talk on the phone about what the mayor of Peterborough said about them, but we won't go down that path. Uh, rather, uh, a few four-letter words were thrown in. But these are just people that, you know, they follow, as you said, uh, sort of the Trump phenomenon in the States, all the conspiracy theorists in there. Who knows what led them to think that this was at all feasible or even a good thing to do? And, and, and you know, kudos to the Peterborough police. They, they did their job properly, uh, and they arrested these people, and, 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 and good for them kind of thing, because this was truly just a joke. And it, it, I think, if anything, it, it really cast a really bad light on this phenomenon of conspiracy theorists in terms of what they're trying to achieve here in the first place. You know, I'm, I, I'm smiling because she arrived in Peterborough in her mobile home, and I have visions of, of uh, Cousin Eddie from National <laughs> Lampoon going, Clark, that there's an SUV. So, you know, I, I don't know, because I didn't watch it, obviously, but I don't know if it was old and she uh, drove up and the smoke was billowing out the back, but, you know... I, I'm really hoping, and I didn't know about this story till till it was pointed out to me. I'm hoping that our friends in the media really didn't give a lot of credence to this story. And I'm with you on this. So certainly, you know, when it comes to the conspiracy theorists here in Canada, we tend to lop them with the sort of greater right wing phenomenon. Again, heavily influenced by the United States. Yes, we have some sort of native right wing people here, but a large of it comes from south of the border, and most of it's a joke. The challenge becomes, and you know as well as I do, Ted, that it could, it could happen, and I stress could, that some of these might actually be a little more confident than the crew that showed up in Peterborough 
and have some kind of violent intent in mind. That's when it becomes worrisome. But these guys, I think they should be dis- dismissed and made fun of in exactly the way you and I have and other media points. These people are a joke and should be labeled as such. Now, when people start putting stuff on Twitter, like we say when they're showing their loyalty to the so-called queen of the world, we had a conversation about this earlier, there's no way that this kind of stuff can be shut down on Twitter or TikTok or any other social media, is there? Well, that's one of the problems, is that you can take accounts down, but they, it's like playing whack-a-mole, Ted. They come up five minutes later under a different name. and this. So I, I think that social media companies certainly, I think, have a responsibility to identify stuff that's truly either illegal or does suggest the possibility of violence to take it down. But then you run into charter rights, run into free speech rights, etc. But I want to make a, a point here, which I think is really important, Ted. So I worked at CSIS for 15 years, and ism is extremism, and the vast majority of people that post stuff online with respect to jihadi stuff, I never did a damn thing, either because they were cowards or they were incompetent. We've we got to be really careful not to draw a line between what you post online and what happens in the real world. The vast majority of people simply aren't capable of doing it. The challenge comes, what about the onesies and twosies that are? And I have every confidence that my colleagues at CSIS and my friends of the RCMP will identify the ones that really have the capability and intent to do something violent to investigate them and then bring them down before they can do anything that, that harms anybody. You know, Phil, you bring up an interesting point, and I'm not asking you to give away the state secret here, but <laughs> well, I won't. Uh, don't worry. I'm no, no, but the secret act. <laughs> but but I when um, for example uh, the group uh, CSIS uh, that you used to to work with uh, CSIS analyst when they hear about a possible threat uh, to and and it's more so in the states because we hear it all the time. You know, so right. you know threats to the White House or the president right. or, or or what have you. I, I know, obviously, we don't know how it's done. But is it easy for groups like CSIS or the Secret Service or the FBI in the States to kind of, you know, get on the computer and kind of do the search and find out exactly who these people are? Because I'm fascinated by that. Well, we certainly have, yeah, we certainly have the ability under legislation to, to do, this is our job, is to monitor threats to security in Canada. If something becomes really serious, we have a, what's called a Section 21 warrant. It's called a Part 6 warrant for law enforcement. You can go to court and say, Phil Gursky's a real problem. Here's what we know about him. We have to monitor him more closely, and a judge will say, yes, we'll grant you a warrant. But often, Ted, it's actually much simpler than that. If, if, if you hear that somebody's saying really stupid stuff online, you're getting concerned, often it's just a knock on the door saying, hi, I'm from CSIS, can we talk? <laughs> and nine times out of ten, you scared the bejesus out of somebody, and you realize there's no there there, so you can eliminate them as, as a credible threat. The ones that, that are a little more serious, then you have all the powers in terms of surveillance, you can go for a federal court warrant, you can recruit human sources or agents against them, you can get assistance from allies to try to monitor that threat, and therefore to try to defeat it and, and to deflect it before it becomes too late. So, again, I have confidence in my former colleagues that they're doing that right now. Phil, and I know uh, in my days of covering, uh, like all of us, we cover uh, what we call the cop shop, the police beat in the morning. You get the uh, briefing of uh, what happened. A lot of times the police would regale us with stories of what they call the stupid criminals, uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, yob of the week, so to speak. <laughs> and when somebody, for example, goes online and posts a picture of themselves holding a rifle and saying, not that we're suggesting this, of the case, but holding a rifle saying Donald Trump must be shot, uh, yeah. it tells me that they're not really that intelligent because obviously their face or whatever is now on social media. They're not the sharpest pencils in the box, Ted. And this is what, you know, when you work for the security service or law enforcement, you, it's, it's hip, hip, hooray when people do that. The, the challenge, of course, becomes with the real smart ones who don't post pictures of themselves online with a, with a gun saying, I want to kill Donald Trump or whatever kind of thing, yep. or attack the FBI as we're seeing south of the border. 
that's where your intelligence first comes in, where you have your human sources, you have an ear to the ground, you know the environment, you run your investigations, and you try to catch those people before it's too late. And I know that, uh, well, the story of Peterborough Mayor Diane Theron, I'm not going to say what she said, but I'm just... Oh, please do, Ted. No, you know what? I, you know, I, I am semi-retired, but I still have a little bit of you know, semblance of, of, of credibility. But it, it's interesting what she called them. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that people are saying, well, the mayor shouldn't say that. Kudos to her for actually saying what it is, because I know about 30 people went to the Peterborough Police Station. Again, not the sharpest uh, knives in the drawer, banging on the door, daring police to uh, come out so they could arrest them. So kudos to the mayor for saying what she said. I'm with you. You know, again, the people that, you know, being Canadian, Ted, we always apologize, right? Let's not be too much out there. But I give a lot of credence and a lot of, uh, you know, I think three cheers for the mayor for calling it what it is. I think we need more of this in this country is that these people are a joke. They represent. They don't represent Canada. They don't represent Canadians. And I think for them to do something as stupid as this, they should be called what the mayor of Peterborough called them. And you know, if she was the mayor of my my village, Ted, I'd vote for her tomorrow. Although she's not running for mayor again, apparently. But I think we have to call a spade a spade here. And this is truly a ridiculous attempt by a ridiculous group of people with a ridiculous ideology, and they should be called for it. Absolutely. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and former CSIS analyst. Thanks for the update on uh, uh, what people do online and how, uh, as we say, sometimes they get nominated for Yabba the Week Club because they're not, as you say, the sharpest knife in the drawer. Phil, always a pleasure. Thanks for this. Have a great weekend. My pleasure, sir. You too. Take care. All right. There you have uh, Phil Gursky's update. Kudos to the mayor. I can't repeat what she said. Google it, and uh, then you can make your own opinion, but... Kudos to her for saying exactly what she said. Earlier today, Health Minister Sylvia Jones announced uh, the plan that, uh, well, a lot of people were waiting for. It aims to hire more health professionals, free up hospital beds, reduce surgical wait times. The plan comes as nursing staff shortages have seen emergency departments across the province close through the summer for hours or days at a time. Joining us to talk about this for the next few minutes is uh, NDP MPP Marit Stiles joins us. First of all, thank you very much. And is it fair to say that you're not really happy with what the health minister said today? Yeah, thanks for, for inviting me. Uh, no, I, I would say I'm not terribly happy, and I think a few people will be. Uh, first of all, this this plan, so-called plan, that was released today by the health minister doesn't do anything that's going to keep our hospital ERs open this weekend. It doesn't hire a single doctor, it doesn't retain a single nurse, and it doesn't even free up nurses. It, in fact, may do the opposite. So I think what we saw here today was not even half measures. It was really just a lot of uh, repeat promises and, and not much action that's actually going to undo the really crisis situation that we're in. How big of an issue do you think that the government is is covering up? Because everybody's still pointing the finger at private clinics, and the province says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And the, the premier said, you know, he will, he, nobody will ever pay for, for health care on, on a credit card. Mm-hmm. But I'm starting to think that, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, and this thing has legs, and it doesn't appear to be going away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference is, you know, there are some, there are for-profit clinics that operate already, but they 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 are and they are for the most part for-profit, these private clinics that he's talking about. There's a couple that aren't. Um, but where, where the concern is, is the slide. Like, first of all, um, it's going to pull more of those healthcare uh, uh, professionals like nurses and doctors that out of our hospitals into those private clinics. 
Um, and then the other thing is it's where you get the add-on cost. So it's the big bills that you get uh, from for the consult with a nutritionist that gets added on or upgrading for cataract lenses or things like that. That's where you start to see the slide. And I think that what the government's doing here is rather than coming, you know, actually listening to what the healthcare experts are saying would actually solve some of the problems that we're experiencing right now. They're using this as an opportunity to, you know, to send people over to those for-profit clinics. And again, you know, somebody's going to get rich off of this, uh, but it isn't going to solve the health care crisis. Our guest is the NDP MPP for Davenport, Toronto, Marit Stiles, talking about what uh, Sylvia Jones said or or didn't say today. One of the things that uh, they also talked about was uh, possibly if uh, uh, somebody is in a hospital bed um, and they need long-term care, that they would leave uh, that hospital room, hospital bed, and be sent to a long-term care facility, but maybe not one as close to home and loved ones as they would like. Clearly, that's concerning. Yeah, you know, we we know right now that there are patients in our hospitals who should be in long-term care, right? Um, But forcing those frail, elderly, vulnerable people into any care that's available, wherever it is, uh, is the wrong direction. I mean, I think about what that means if one of my parents, for example, were frail or elderly or in that situation, and they would be sent to, you know, maybe they'd be sent to a different community, which would make it almost impossible for me to, to see them regularly or help. And we know how much families are relied upon to, to provide a lot of that care or, you know, sent to one of the facilities where we saw terrible track record during COVID. Uh, what if they were sent to Orchard Villa, for example? So, so yes, a bed will be freed up, but at what cost to the care of that person? When you uh, talk to your constituents uh, in uh, in Davenport in Toronto, um, is health care the number one topic that people uh, tell you that they have concerns about? You know, it for sure is. I mean, I think there are other issues that really are in people's mind, too, of course, right now, like cost of living and housing. But health care is always right up there. If you ask people, you know, what, what do you care most about? Health care is the one. And, you know, because I think that for most of us, if we're fortunate enough not to need any kind of health care services right now or you know, have people who are ill in our families, we feel lucky, right? But we know it's coming. We know that everybody is going to need that at some point. And right now what we're seeing is uh, people who haven't had to experience those shortages really experiencing them. Look, many parts of this province, too, have had these crises going on for a long time. Let's be honest, right? Like there's lots of parts of this province where people have been underserved for a long time. Um, it is concerning that we're seeing in big uh, centers like Hamilton, like Toronto, like Ottawa, though, emergency rooms now closing. The crisis is here. It's even in our biggest urban centers. And, uh, and the solutions that the government came up with today don't go anywhere near uh, solving it. I don't know why they aren't attempting to actually solve the human resource issue. Like, there's lots of solutions that other provinces have tried uh, that helped, for example, speed up um, assessment for internationally trained uh, nurses and doctors that is working really well, we should be trying the same things here. Now, is is that something that the province does or because, well, oh, I was going to ask if it's a, that's a federal mandate, but actually it's not because every province has their own health care system. But, but how how easy could it be to have foreign-trained nurses and doctors and specialists to to perform the same jobs here in Canada? Because it seems there's a lot of red tape involved. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it takes some leadership, right? It takes some leadership, and that does come from the provincial government. So um, one of the things that the government ha- could bring back right now is what they call practice-ready assessment program for those internationally trained doctors and nurses. And in other jurisdictions, in other provinces, in seven of the other provinces, um, what they do is they, they provide this opportunity for internationally trained physicians and nurses to uh, be assessed in the field for 12 weeks. And then they have to go through a few other little, you know, hoops. But it's it's much less than what we do now. And then we they're they're required to then uh, provide a certain amount of, of of service in underserved areas. So it really has worked very effectively in other jurisdictions. We can do it for doctors, but we can also do it for nurses. There are a lot of people who are ready and willing to be working now. And then the other big thing, which you know I don't want to forget about, is let's actually treat our healthcare workers with some respect. I mean, nurses and other healthcare workers should not be having to deal with Bill 124, which, you know, just forces them to their their income to stagnate. That's why people are leaving. They're leaving because they feel like disrespected. They're working really hard. They're exhausted. Let's show them some respect. Let's repeal Bill 124. Davenport, NB, NDP, MPP, Marit Stiles, thank you for joining us and uh, giving us uh, some uh, reaction to what was or wasn't announced by Health Minister Sylvia Jones today. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, we had the story uh, earlier today talking about Lisa LaFlamme, what happened at the CTV and how they had a a meeting today uh, among the staff uh, trying to explain their position. And there's been a lot of recriminations and accusations and people pointing fingers, and we really don't know what happened. Uh, But they talked about uh, how things were changing a little bit uh, at a CTV. Well, all I can say is we have an interesting story here, and I don't know if you can correlate what happened in the States with what happened with Lisa But as Jason Nathanson tells us, streaming TV viewership beat out cable TV viewership in the U.S. last month. Thanks to shows like Netflix's Stranger Things. More time was spent streaming shows than watching cable television in the U.S. in July for the first time ever. That according to Nielsen. In their monthly snapshot, The Gauge, streaming snagged 34.8% of all viewing, compared to cable's 34.4%. Netflix made up the biggest chunk of that at 8%. Before this, cable previously had the highest share of all TV watching. Streaming is up over 20% from last year, while cable is down almost 10%. Broadcast, which has a much smaller share than both, also down 10% from 2021. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. This is uh, news that you have to use. A new study shows bees are increasingly stressed by climate change. Researchers took photos of thousands of bumblebees to study the evolution of their shape during the 20th century. Aoife Cantwell-Jones at Imperial College in London noticed bees were different during times that were hot and wet. The wings um, are more different on the same bee, so this kind of could be an indicator that bees uh, maybe had a bit more stress in those years that were hotter and wetter. The bumblebee specimens date from 1900 to 2000. Experts say dead bumblebees are easy to preserve. There's a possibility of other factors contributing to a change in a bee's shape. Given climate change and given that we're predicted to have a lot more hot weather, I think we we could be a bit worried about how bees are doing in the future. According to the United Nations, a third of the world's food production depends on pollination from bees, and their population has been declining for more than a decade. I'm Ed Donahue. Ed Donahue was also busy with another story today, and it's a sports note. And if you're just joining us, if you haven't heard, Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson 
will serve an 11-game suspension. It's a settlement with the NFL following accusations of sexual misconduct by two dozen women while Watson was with the Houston Texans. I'm moving on with my career and my life, and I'm continuing to stand on my innocence. Just because, you know, settlements and things like that happen doesn't mean that a person is, is guilty for anything. The NFL wanted a one-year suspension. Watson was accused of sexually harassing and coercing the women during massage therapy sessions. Through this whole process, we've been trying to tell my side of the story, um, but a lot of people wasn't able to or didn't really pay too much attention to it. But one day we will. Uh, only time will tell. Watson was also fined $5 million and will have to be evaluated by behavioral experts and follow an NFL treatment program. I'm Ed Donahue. And to wrap up the program, some really good news a nice story a couple from tennessee looking for a romantic backdrop to their engagement picture well they found one carlsey bibb and her fiance caden mills from cookville tennessee would have liked to have been in italy for their engagement photos but who can afford that so they asked their photographer for some suggestions she's taken our pictures a few times before and they it's always been great so we just knew whatever she had up her sleeve would be perfect up her sleeve this time a photo shoot at the local olive garden initially we were kind of hesitant and we weren't sure how they were going to turn out the photos made to look as if they were in a villa in tuscany went viral olive garden liked them so much it's treating them to an engagement dinner next week sherry preston abc news it's the least they can do so a brilliant move by the photographer, and there you have it. You put it on social media, whatever, and share it, and uh, then it becomes uh, viral, and you never know what can happen. Well, that puts the cap on the program for today. Uh, thanks to Will Erskine, the content producer, who uh, got all the guests lined up and everything else and does what he does all the time, behind closed doors, gets it done. Also, uh, Will Weber for taking care of uh, all the technical stuff uh, that I know that uh, he has to do with. Because, you know, again, people really don't know how much work goes into something like this. They think all, all I do is put turn on the mic and talk. Well, yeah, but there's a lot more to it, and it is a team here. And and uh, I you know thank them for both for, for what they do on a daily basis. So we will join you again tomorrow, the final day for myself before Scott Thompson returns next Monday. And uh, it's Friday, so we may have some, you know, lighter stories. Then again, in news, we've always learned to say, never say never. See you tomorrow afternoon. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.